I've got some great news. It's now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Welcome to the Brain Science Podcast. This is episode 116, and I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell. Before I tell you about today's episode, I want to address some concerns that were raised recently by a long-term listener. First, he felt that my preference for interviewing scientists who have written books implies that I have less respect for researchers who don't do so. Nothing could be further from the truth. I actually do this for practical reasons. First, it allows me to take advantage of the huge amount of research that goes into writing a good science book. And secondly, it makes it easy for you as a listener to know where to go to learn more. The Brain Science Podcast has a very diverse audience. So another advantage of focusing on books is it allows me to vary the technical level of my content. I try to alternate between books aimed at general readers and those from academic publishers. Another request I often get from long-term listeners is that you would like me to do more book review episodes rather than all interviews. The reality is that my current time constraints make this difficult, but I appreciate the feedback and suggestions. Today's episode is intended for listeners of all backgrounds. We will be talking with Dr. Norman Doidge about his latest book, The Brain's Way of Healing, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. I am aware that certain skeptical writers have accused Dr. Doidge of being a, quote, neuroplasticity huckster, end quote. Obviously, I disagree with that charge, especially since it's being made by people who don't seem to have read his books. However, during the interview, Dr. Doidge and I addressed the challenge of determining the difference between valid treatments that are not yet mainstream and those that are less reputable. Dr. Doidge first appeared on the Brain Science Podcast back in episode 26, which was one of our first episodes about brain plasticity. Today, we will be talking about some of the new clinical applications of the discovery that our brains do remain plastic throughout our lives. One theme that will emerge is that this discovery has barely penetrated the world of clinical medicine and patient care. We'll talk a little bit about why this is so. After the episode, I hope you will check out the complete show notes and episode transcript on our website at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can always send me email feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to continue listening after the interview when I will summarize the key ideas and tell you about next month's guest. Welcome back, Norman. It's hard to believe that it's been over seven years since your first appearance on the Brain Science Podcast back in episode 26. Yeah, it's been that long. 
I'm really sorry that we didn't get to spend any time together when you came to Birmingham back in October, but I'm really glad to have you back on the Brain Science Podcast. So for the sake of my new listeners, I'm happy to say that I have a few more listeners than I did back in 2007. Do you mind starting by telling us a little bit about yourself, including how you happened to become a best-selling writer about brain plasticity? Sure. My background as an undergrad was in philosophy and literature. So I did a very intensive concentration there. I think the study in philosophy was very important in understanding about fundamental premises. Philosophy opened up a lot of questions. I also became very interested in biology and became a physician and a psychiatrist. I did my MD at the University of Toronto, a year of psychiatry there, and then I did an American psychiatric residency at Columbia, also did simultaneous psychoanalytic training, and then I did research training at Columbia and the National Institute of Mental Health. They were affiliated. Came back to Toronto, ran the assessment clinic at the Clark Institute and the psychotherapy center there for a number of years. My interest in plasticity came from many directions. I went to Columbia because, among other things, it was one of the departments of psychiatry where the serious biologists and the psychoanalysts were not quarreling with one another, but they were working together. A lot of this had to do with the history of Columbia and the influence of Eric Kendall, who won the Nobel Prize for demonstrating a number of things, including the fact that learning changes the number of synaptic connections between neurons. He actually got into that originally because he wanted to be a psychiatrist and He was originally from Vienna. He was very, very interested and still is in psychoanalysis. And some of his mentors picked up that he was very good material for lab. They said, we know that psychotherapy works in some way or other by learning, but we don't exactly know how learning works at a molecular level. So he went and showed us how that works. And when I applied to Columbia, I was And this is just such a Columbia story. The head of the Columbia Psychoanalytics sent me an article to woo me saying, this is the kind of thing we do here. And it was Kandel's study of anxiety from the marine snail he was working on all the way up to psychoanalysis, trying to integrate these things. At the time, in many departments in North America, people felt that analysis and emphasis on the mind was rather passe and serious science was just focused on molecules. But the influence of someone like Kandel, who was really a very educated, refined human being, was that you don't advance science by trying to chop things away. You do it by trying to integrate and get a whole picture. That was the first thing. I'd also read much of the early Freud when he was a neuroscientist and then became a neurologist. And he actually proposed in the 1880s the equivalent of the idea that neurons that fire together wire together. He called it the law of association by simultaneity. When two events occur simultaneously, the neurons that subserve the different aspects of those events hook up. That's generally attributed to Donald Hebb in 1949 by most people in neuroscience, but in fact, Freud had already been there. So many of the underlying concepts in psychoanalysis were actually very consistent with neuroplasticity. But the trigger, I would say, for getting very deeply involved was, in some respects, geographical. The Clark Institute of Psychiatry, where I worked, is 
part of the University of Toronto and on the edge of the campus. And I was getting a lot of patients who seemed quite intelligent. This included students and even professors who are having trouble learning when the amount they had to learn sped up. So for instance, someone might do reasonably well. He's a highly intelligent person in high school, but when they have to do the load of learning and reading in university, they just fell apart. And I started to realize that these were very well compensated people with learning disorders. And sometimes it would be a professor. I immersed myself in learning disorders. This is in the early mid-90s. All of the literature on it basically talked about them as though they were hardwired and that you had to help these people by working around them with compensations. And I'd already had some theoretical reasons to doubt that and some lab reasons because of what Kendall was showing. And by chance, Toronto had a school run by Barbara Aerosmith Young that used brain exercises. And so I immersed myself in that school. I spent hours and hours there, and I interviewed many of the students that came in, and I saw that they were getting better. And that turned out to be one of the chapters in the brain that changes itself. Then I basically went to the library and started studying other possible interventions that were being completely marginalized because they were outside the mainstream view, which was that the brain is hardwired. After Hubble and Weasel discovered some plasticity in infancy, they declared that we believe that after the critical period closes very early on for particular functions, they were usually working on vision, that the circuits are basically hardwired and unchangeable. They're permanent. And so the very people who had discovered plasticity in kittens originally had popularized the idea of plasticity in infancy, said there was none later on. So people who had treatments that might have involved plasticity were not taken seriously. They were seeing the hucksters and so on. And then I just immersed myself in them, and I found out they weren't hucksters. And I've been heavily immersed in this field, I would say, since about the year 2000, so 14-plus years. I've seen many, many interventions, and the burden of the first book was to try to show that plasticity is real. It exists not only in the lab, but has clinical and cultural relevance. In this book, I deal with the things I have learned since, and I've learned a number of things since. I've gone deeper into the whole notion of healing, neuroplastic healing, if you will, and I've been able to document, I believe for the first time, that there are various stages in it, or I propose that there are various stages. That's one of the things. I also would say the book deals with the work of the second generation of these people I call the neuroplasticians who are unburdened by having to prove that plasticity exists and the themes in their work. And I found a number of themes in their work. One of the themes was many of them were working with energy to talk to the brain. Another theme was that they were working with the body. And the third thing was, even though they were neuroscientists and clinicians with Western training, it was surprising how many of them in their private lives had become fascinated with the various Eastern traditional medical practices that involved energy. It seemed to resonate with their work. Now, the problem has been for many, many decades that when Easterners talk about energy, it's very, very hard to translate into Western terms and equations. The energy treatments that I describe in this book 
all can be understood in terms of Western science and equations. When light is used or sound is used or electricity is used, these are three of the big ones, biological levels of electricity, which I'll explain. You can write equations for all of these things. So I'm not being dismissive when I say the following statement. It's not some vague sense of chi or subtle energy that's very hard to define. It is energy in Western terms that I deal with. But nonetheless, these people were fascinated as well by Eastern medical practices. Like, you know, in one case, for instance, you know, electrical stimulation is used on the tongue. And it may, in fact, be the case that there are some acupuncture spots very near that. Another case, I described the use of lasers on certain spots on the head that not only pass into the head and the brain, but pass through certain acupuncture spots. So there's areas where East and West are at a practical level meeting. But I would say these people are all highly conscientious, non-flaky, Western-trained practitioners who are also at the same time open-minded and understand we don't understand everything there is about the brain. One of the principles that you brought out in your new book, which I'm going to mention is called The Brain's Way of Healing, is you talked about the importance of noise. That was something Dr. Mersnick talked about when the Dalai Lama was here in Birmingham. Would you talk about that? Sure. But let me just say a word about the title, if I can, and then I'll get to that, because it's all related. The title is The Brain's Way of Healing, and for many, many decades, scientists and clinicians did not use the words brain and healing in the same sentence. The general belief was that the brain does not heal very well, if at all. When someone has a stroke, we know that they have a crisis in the brain, a metabolic chemical chaos, metabolic derangement while the blood is being reabsorbed and the inflammation occurs and we're waiting for the stroke to pass and we see what is left after this crisis happens. There was very minimal physiotherapy used and it was really to prime the pump. And that's because people believe that the patients weren't so much getting better as we were seeing what was left after the damage. And that was because the brain didn't really heal. And we would hear over and over, you know, once neurons die, they never return. There were no stem cells that could be found in the brain until 1998. So the belief was the brain doesn't heal. And the explanation was it was simply too sophisticated. It had become too specialized in the course of evolution, or so specialized in the course of evolution that it had it lost the ability available to other organs to heal themselves with replacement parts, the way skin has its own method of healing and growing over and creating scar tissue, and the liver has its method, and bones have their method of healing. The brain didn't. Now, I argue in this book that, in fact, these highly sophisticated attributes of the brain actually enable it to heal in its own unique way. And these attributes are largely related to the fact that the brain can form, unform, and reform circuits very, very rapidly. And I argue that we have had a too material, a too chemical, and a too digital view of the brain, which has affected our understanding of brain damage. And if you correct for that, you can begin to understand how healing can occur. So let me just go through each of these because this will get to the noise issue. The material view of the brain tends to reduce it to a bag of chemicals 
where the main communication in the brain has to do with neurotransmitters. It ignores what I would call the lingua franca of the brain, the communication in the brain that goes on over vast stretches of cortical real estate is actually electrical and energetic. It's patterns of electrical energy. So we have not focused nearly enough, I believe, on this from a clinical point of view. Most neurological interventions are, in fact, the use of medications at this point, for instance. Now, someone would say, well, we talk about the electrical nature of the brain all the time. Yes, but most clinical interventions are not electrical. Now, I also say it's too digital. Here's what I mean by that. You know, we're all taught that neurons are either on or off, the all or nothing phenomenon of neurons. But if you look at vast numbers of neurons, that on or off metaphor for groups of neurons is not quite right. The only time neurons are completely off is when they're dead. And when they're so-called off, they're usually firing at a very slow rate. Not always. Sometimes it can be a fast rate, but most neurons as far as we know, fire at kind of a very slow rate in the off position and a faster rate in the on position. There's more spikes or fewer spikes. Now, I'm finally getting to the point of the question. As I came to see it in the course of writing this book, when there is brain damage or disease, in many, many conditions, you have the following. Some neurons are or may be dead and they fire no spikes. The sudden loss of input to the neurons adjacent to those dead neurons is probably problematic. But anyway, you have your dead neurons and the ones adjacent to the dead, which are, are not getting their accustomed input. Then you have sick neurons, which are firing irregular spikes or slower spikes or sometimes faster spikes. And then you have the healthy neurons that are receiving these inappropriate signals that are either too fast, too slow, or irregular. And then finally, you may have some healthy neurons that are not receiving those signals. So you have all these classes of neurons, and many of these classes are actually either generating or receiving spikes that are not in sync with what they should be. This, in my mind, is the noisy brain. Now, am I just making this up? No. Dr. Mersenick's had a huge impact on my thought. He emphasized that the aging brain starts to become a noisy brain and showed in a variety of ways that certain kinds of children with learning disorders also have a noisy brain. But I'd learned with my work in the Bahirita lab that people with balance and brainstem problems also have noisy brains. And then in the process of writing this book, I did lots of training in neurofeedback, which involves reading quantitative EEGs, it's the same kind of EEG that a neurologist would look at, but instead of looking at the huge mountains and valleys, you're looking at the hills and the rivulets. You take a finer look, I would say, at the EEG. And what the neurofeedback practitioners were finding was that there were inappropriate rhythms in many, many, many kinds of disorders. Areas that should have had something like a very low beta wave or what's called an SMR wave might have a theta wave. It's just too slow, or whenever there's brain injury, there's frequently delta waves, a very, very slow rate. So you have important parts of the brain generating the wrong wave. And I started to realize that the heart and the brain have this similarity, that they both have pacemakers, and they can both be off. And, you know, many disorders, it's, you know, as I started to pay attention to the literature in a different way, I saw patients with Parkinson's, tinnitus, some depressions, 
along with the, you know, the more well-known ones of the aging brain and brain damage and epilepsy and so on, they all have aberrant firing rates. So I articulated to myself that the noisy brain is actually a very, very common problem. Now, when a brain is firing at the wrong rate, function is compromised. When function is compromised, significantly you start to get learned non-use. Whenever a person is not using a brain area consistently over time, it starts to atrophy physically and the person at a learning level, so this is an unconscious learning, it's not conscious, starts to think that whenever I apply that cognitive function, it doesn't work, so they kind of learn not to apply it and think it's not there. Now, I've laid out what I think is novel in this book in terms of emphasis that so many brain problems based on disease or damage have both a noisy brain and learned non-use. Okay, what this means in practice is that patients present and they seem unable to function and they, their families and their physicians assume that the illness is proportional to how much brain cell death there is in that patient. So they don't tax them and they don't know how to intervene. Sometimes people say that my first book was the brain that changes itself and this book is the brain that heals itself. But actually, I didn't call it the brain that heals itself because I believe you need an expert to understand that the patient is often at a sort of brain cell level, not as bad off as they may appear functionally. And they need some interventions to help the healing. And that's why the book begins with this, I think, very beautiful epigraph from Hippocrates that says that it's not just the physician, but it's the physician, the patient, the attendants all working together that bring about these cures. So a patient presents, they may well have a noisy brain and learn non-use. How do we help them synchronize their brains? This is where thought and energy come in. So just a few words about why energy is such an important theme in this book. Many years ago, I had a discussion with Dr. Paul Bakhirita, who I wrote about in detail in the first book and in passing in this book. And he told me something that every neuroscience and every medical student, every psychologist knows, and I'll just repeat it. The difference is that he understood how to apply it, and it's this. We all see things, we smell things, we hear things. But there are no images in the brain. They may exist somehow in the mind or the interaction of the mind and the world. There are no odors in the brain. There are no sounds in the brain. There are just these patterns of electrical energy. And they all come in through one of our sensory receptors. And what are our sensory receptors? Our sensory receptors in engineering terms are transducers. They convert one form of energy to another. Or to be more precise, the way I would like to put it, is they convert the energy and the patterns of information in one form of energy into another form of energy that often can hold the patterns of information. So our retina converts patterns of light, photons, light information into electrical patterns of energy and our, the cochlea sound into information and energy into electrical energy and patterns of energy. 
there are theories that smell works by the vibrational resonances of the molecules being converted from vibrational resonances into electrical energy. What this meant to me was insofar as I had immersed myself for you know, the better part of a decade in understanding that thought can change brain structure and function. I understood that sensory experience was not unrelated to thought. I mean, it's a mental experience. And that it meant that sensory experience would be a way of talking to the brain. And as, as I say, these patterns of information are, I believe, the lingua franca of the brain. Chemicals are often local, not always, of course, but they're in the brain. You know, dopamine is very concentrated in certain parts of the brain and not others, to give one example. But all brain cells speak the electrical language. And so suddenly it did not seem so far-fetched or ridiculous to imagine that if you could master the use of sound and sound frequencies, you would be able to change certain brain structures and maybe synchronize a brain. The same with light, the same with electricity. The issue of entrainment comes in here. For instance, if you go and listen to a, you know, a heavy beat of a music, you've got a quantitative EEG attached to the brain, the neurons will start firing in the dominant frequency of the music. That's just one simple rhythmical way of influencing neurons. And at one point in Japan, I describe a story where there was a show that had a lot of stroboscopic effects and many children in Japan suddenly had epileptic seizures. And of course, sometimes strobes are used to test for epilepsy. This is another example of entrainment. These are graphic examples of using sensory input to the brain. Now, what I liked about this idea of using the senses was they were designed to receive these kinds of information. And we could get right into the brain using the senses in a non-invasive way. No skulls had to be cracked open to talk to the brain. So I began to be very excited about a number of treatments that most people written, had written off as probably bogus, bizarre, hocus-pocus, and so on. What I had to do was, I now had my basic model. I had to study how these people had learned about these specific frequencies. The devil's in the details, but the book is just filled with different examples of energy treatments and taking on really serious neurological conditions. There's one final concept in what I think was wrong with our view. Well, two more final concepts of what I thought was wrong with our view of the brain. One of them was that I believe we've developed a too imperial view of the brain. Neuroscientists increasingly were talking about the brain was the place where all the action was. Now, they come by this honestly because the great accomplishments of 19th century and 20th century neuroscience, and especially neurology, has been brain mapping. Everyone knows you go to the neurologist to find out, quote, where the lesion is. And, of course, we learned that if a man or a woman, someone had a stroke and their foot wouldn't move, the problem was not in the foot as they felt it to be, but it was in the part of the brain map involved in moving the foot or in the function of moving the foot. Now, the occupational hazard of spending your whole life mapping the brain is you start to think that everything is controlled very much by the brain. Books would come out. They're all well-meaning. I, I get that, but would have titles like, You Are Your Brain. The brain is where all the action is. And then you would have people, such as Ray Kurzweil, who talks about just living long enough 
to be able to download all the information in his brain into a computer. This comes out of the artificial intelligence world where people would often speculate about studying a brain in a vat away from the body. And Evan Thompson, who you've interviewed, has a beautiful paper on this and what's wrong with it. By the time you describe what has to be in the vat for that brain to survive, it has all the attributes of a human body. This idea that you are your brain is just terribly, terribly wrong. It's an idea that the body is there to serve the brain. It is the servant to the master imperial brain. It couldn't be more wrong because in terms of evolution, brains evolved long after bodies did to serve bodies. Of course, as soon as brains evolved, bodies changed so that they work in a two-way communication. You know, there are certain nerves that have many more afferents than they do efferents. There's a lot more information coming and signals coming to the brain from the body. So there really is this ongoing interaction. So when I'm talking about how the senses work, we have to revive a more holistic view of body and brain. And so one of the key influences in this book is trying to restore some holism to this. It's only in anatomy textbooks that brains are separated from bodies. Functionally, they're constantly working together. They're connected by the peripheral nervous system, and the sensory system is connected to the world outside. We have to put Humpty Dumpty back together again if we want to understand our patients. Now, the final thing that's wrong with the model is I believe it's too corticocentric. People think that the most impressive parts of the brain are the cortex. There's all sorts of reasons for that. One of them is microelectrodes, which are incredible advances. You know, originally were easiest to use on the outside of the brain. You take off part of the skull, you use microelectrodes. Before we had certain kinds of brain scans, it was much, much harder to study deep into the brain. The other way we studied the brain had to do with the EEG, which is trying to figure out things on the surface. And we had to get very complex mathematics to try to work with those waves on the surface to determine what might be happening deeper in the brain. There's something called Loretta that does that. Now we have scans that get us deeper into the subcortex. But in general, this was the reasoning. Human beings are the most intelligent creatures on the planet, supposedly. Human beings have, you know, the most cortex, roughly speaking, compared to other animals. We evolve very late. Therefore, the impressive things like abstraction and so on and so forth are basically all part of the cortex. And you can look at decorticate animals and it seems that, you know, they have survival functions, but not uh, any of these wonderful things that have to do with the cortex. Now, I'm not a cortex basher. I'm glad I've got a cortex and I'm glad you've got a cortex. There has been a tendency to look at for all high, the, the sort of seat of all higher cognitive functions in the cortex. And I believe it's far more interactive. And what really happened in evolution is that once a cortex evolved, the subcortex responded and changed. And I described scientific studies in my book that showed that, you know, if you look at a number of animals, humans and primates and other animals, that as cortex evolves, so does subcortex, and they're interacting. Now, this is important clinically because in certain disorders such as autism and attention deficit disorder, the assumption has always been well, attention and impulsivity, these are related to executive functioning and so on. These are clearly cortical problems and our treatment would address cortical problems and sometimes it'd be behavioral and top-down. 
But in actual fact, there are parts of the basal ganglia and the cerebellum that are very involved in these circuits and go awry in these kids. And we have not been paying attention to the subcortex. And sound input, which comes up through the brainstem and then goes in the ear and the vestibular apparatus and it goes into those vestibular nuclei and so on in the brainstem and then up ultimately into the auditory cortex. You might say there's a lot of down-up circuitry from sound. This actually turns out to be a very, very good way to address a lot of the problems in children who are autistic or even have attentional problems coming at it through the ear using various kinds of frequencies to address and modify their circuitry. And it's totally non-invasive. And sometimes I've got examples of kids in the book, and I've seen many examples. I don't describe anywhere near the number of examples. When I'm writing a book, I've learned that people learn by getting to know one case well. But that doesn't mean I just saw one case. I'm using it for illustrative purposes. But I've seen many, many children who had what was called ADD that could be addressed through listening-based therapies, which work. And I've seen improvements in autistic kids. That's a whole other subject we can get to by coming at it through the senses and up through the subcortical parts of the brain, which are often troubled and working over time. And once you address that, this is a theory, but I would bet some money on this theory which is if a person has subcortical problems, some of them can actually be addressed by diverting cortical resources to that function. I've got a huge example of that in my chapter on treating Parkinson's where somebody has basal ganglial problems who uses a conscious walking technique. The basal ganglia basically knits together simpler movements into complex patterns, and that goes awry in Parkinson's. But if you use a conscious technique to do the actions, break them down and knit them together, you can get movement. This would be an example of using frontal areas having to do with concentration and so forth to take over a subcortical function. And similarly, I think that kids with subcortical problems often have to use a lot of their cortex just to get through the day and they're very easily exhausted. Anyway, I I think I've told you all the major problems with their model of the brain, just to set the stage maybe for talking about some of these individuals' therapies. I actually had a couple in mind that I, I wanted to spend a few minutes on. You have obviously many more examples than we can possibly talk about. One that I'm particularly fascinated by, and actually I think we would almost have to say that this would be a first-generation neuroplastician, would be Feldenkrais. Can you talk a little bit about Feldenkrais and his work? Okay. Well, there were two thinkers that I included in this book who you might say they are old hat. But I actually think that these are people who did absolutely remarkable things in the age before brain plasticity was accepted and therefore were not understood. Some people have heard of the Feldenkrais technique, which is a movement-based technique, and they think that what it is is it's something for sore necks and aching backs. But Feldenkrais actually worked with a number of severely brain-damaged people. And I talk about his work in detail with a woman who had a stroke and a reading problem and another, a girl who was born with cerebellar hypoplasia, which in her case basically de facto meant that she was missing a third of her cerebellum. It just was not functioning. It wasn't there to function. And I'll get back to that in a second. 
just say a few words about Feldenkrais. Feldenkrais was a very serious nuclear physicist. He worked in the Joliet Curie lab that had major, major breakthroughs in discovering artificial reactivity, and Einstein wrote about them, and he actually was involved in smuggling certain secrets out of France as the Gestapo was approaching their lab in the hope of getting at the atomic secrets. And he went to England. He was clearly a genius who had mastered many domains and many intellectual disciplines. He was also one of the first people to bring judo to Europe. And he had terrible soccer injury. In fact, while he was trying to escaping the Gestapo with these secrets, his knee was acting up terribly. And then he worked for counterintelligence for the British on submarines to protect British submarines, and he often slipped and hurt his knee. And so he began to apply everything he knew from physics to understanding how his knee would work, but he'd also learned a lot of things, and this is where the Eastern tie comes in, about movement and awareness from his judo master, Kano. Basically, he would lie in bed for many, many hours and just move his knee very, very gently to understand how it worked. He also read a lot of neuroscience, and Feldenkrais basically came to the conclusion very early on that the brain was plastic, that it was programmed by our activities, that mind and brain and body were one, that there is no such thing as simple abstract thinking separate from motor activation, that they're related all the time, so that even when you're thinking a thought or thinking of saying something but you don't say it, if you had your hand on the voice box, you could detect little movements and so on. And that thought always had a motor component. You're lying in bed and you're thinking something that's emotionally upsetting, but you don't get up and do something. But there, you know, there's tension or high tonus there, for instance. One of his most important insights, again, somewhat coming from the East, is that most of the movements we do, we do without close awareness. And if you apply awareness to movement, you can change the movement and the structure of the circuit. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the way to get awareness of movement is to slow it down and make it very gentle and light. Only then can you observe the effects of the movement. As he would put it, if he had an iron bar and a fly lands on the iron bar, you can't detect it. If it lands on a feather, you can detect it. I think that was one of his examples. Very small movements are much easier for the brain to register and learn and differentiate. Now, Many people would come to him, for instance, with problems in spasticity. He'd see people with cerebral palsy and so on and so forth. A lot of kids who have developmental problems with special needs, for instance, do something called toe walking because their calves are so tight or their adductors are very tight so they can't separate their knees. And the way that this would be treated would be with surgery to sort of cut the muscles, to extend them, or Botox repeatedly. Some of these kids were born with eye problems and they would cut and rearrange the eye muscles. And what he found is in all of these kids, there was very high tonus. And because he believed holistically it was a mind-brain-body problem, instead of trying to correct the high tonus by cutting the muscles, or as some people would do, just stretching them all the time, which causes these children immense amount of pain, he realized that it's a brain problem. The brain is creating all of this high tonus, and it's very poorly regulated. And he would find that by very, very gentle movements, he could get the brain to use awareness to lower the tonus. 
Now, the best way I can describe this to you is an experiment that he actually did on himself. It's often done in Feldenkrais awareness through movement lessons. Let's say you have a tight neck, neck tension. He would lie down to eliminate the role of gravity on the body, and then he might tuck his head the smallest amount he possibly could. I'm talking about a quarter of an inch with total awareness and up and down. And he might concentrate his awareness just on the left side of the body as he did this. And he might do this for five, six, seven minutes, many, many repetitions, just concentrating. And just through the awareness, over the time, he would find that his entire left side of his body would release and work with ease. Now, it's very, very interesting. This is not simply putting yourself into a parasympathetic state of relaxation because the right side wouldn't release because you weren't casting the light of awareness on the right side. To use a more sort of neuroscientific language, he was basically saying, you know, we have these sensory motor loops and they work together. And we've been thinking them as though they're radically separate. So this is more holistic. And in fact, most people do not know this, but there actually are some sensory cells in the motor cortex. I learned this from Carl Pribrat, who's a neurosurgeon. But you don't even need them to be physically situated there to understand that the circuit works holistically. And the sensory part of the circuit is designed always to help us know, you know how the movement is going. And by using mental awareness, you can speed up this process. Now, later on, you might spend half an hour in a Feldenkrais class just doing an awareness of the left side of the body, and then five minutes at most doing awareness on the right side of the body, and it'll release much faster because the right side is learning from the left side. Feldenkrais would say, the right side is not learning from me. It's learning from your left side. The trick here would be to do random movements very, very gently to see what felt best. So the body learns I love massage, but it's very different from going to massage and kneading the body or pressing acupressure spots, and it's very, very different from physiotherapy. It's an awareness-based approach. Now, if you've got the person in a quiescent state, you could use this technique on kids with severe brain damage to, for instance, release high tonus. When the tonus goes down, they can be much more aware. He was very big that the way the brain is learning is through something called differentiation. And in fact, in that example I gave you, you are learning to differentiate what a good move feels like, an uncomfortable move, and so on. In the book, I have examples of children who were born with brain damage of various kinds being helped. So that girl, Elizabeth, I described, she was practically paralyzed, had very, very few movements, was thought to be intellectually utterly incompetent, and... He worked with her on these various differentiations, and he also had a whole theory of development that I can't get into right now. But instead of trying to get her to do the things that everyone else wanted her to do, he got her to do the things that were appropriate for development. Make a long story short, she did advance. At one point, when the parents were completely distressed with this child who was practically immobile, he said she will dance at her wedding. And over the years, he worked with her she did work with a couple of other therapists, most notably Anat Baniel, and I believe a woman named Ruthie Alon had some work with her as well. And she did dance at her wedding, and she got two graduate degrees. And she spends her time reading Tolstoy and Shakespeare and so on and so forth. So this would be a movement-based intervention 
combined with thought and awareness, it was helpful. In the book, I said that I've elaborated stages of plasticity. Just a word on that. As I got to know many different kinds of neuroplastic interventions, I began to try to put them in order. And I would say these are the following stages that I discerned. And they don't always have to happen in this order, but for me, it makes good sense for them to do so. The first stage is you have to attend to general cellular health in brain cells. So that includes both the neurons and the glial cells. And one of the key interventions in the book is the use of low-intensity lasers, which don't burn flesh. They actually heal and energize flesh for that. Or detoxification regimes or attending in some people to dietary problems that are causing brain inflammation. That's the first stage. The second one is of neurostimulation. The sound treatment does that. The electrical treatment does that. The next stage is what I call neuromodulation, and that often is involving a brainstem reset. Over and over, I see with these interventions that the person who's had a brain disease or problem, when they have the intervention, have a profoundly restful sleep. And it can go on for several weeks. And I believe their brainstem, their reticular activating system is resetting. It's very natural. It's a pleasant sleep, but it's very, very deep. Any person with a brain problem is often in fight or flight, but it's more than just that, I think. And that's a neural relaxation phase, I propose, where the neurons are beginning to gather energy to do normal amounts of work. And it's followed by the differentiation phase, where they go from having brain maps that are somewhat atrophied and very blunt because they haven't been used, I'll explain that in a second, to being able to make fine distinctions. So for instance, if a child is born with spasticity and they can't move their limbs, there's no differentiation in the sensory motor cortex for that limb because it's never making different kinds of motions. And so they have a very blunted map and you have to teach them to develop refined movements. Just as a normal baby that isn't rigid might begin by putting its fist in its mouth and gradually it explores individual fingers and then it sucks its thumb and then it can use the fingers separately. There are many, many instances in brain damage, stroke, etc., where you have to redifferentiate brain maps. And that's the final phase of my sort of stages. Well, Feldenkrais seems to have addressed all these stages, but especially the use of small movements to stimulate awareness and differentiation. Yes. You know, and I believe thought can actually trigger neurostimulation, targeted thought in my chapter on pain. Let's just leave it at that. Much of my first book is about the use of thought to change brain structure. And I think what happens is when you have a thought, as far as I understand it, the neurons involved in that circuitry start to use up energy. And then blood is supplied to that area to make up for the use of energy. And that's what we see on an fMRI. But thought can trigger the stimulation of particular neurons. But these energy-based interventions, I believe, are very helpful for dormant circuitry, long-dormant circuitry involved in learned non-use. The Brain Science Podcast is sponsored by Audible.com, the world's leading provider of downloadable audio content in a wide variety of genres. Both of Dr. Deutsch's books, The Brain That Changes Itself and The Brain's Way of Healing, are available on Audible. If you are new to Audible, you can get either one of these for free by going to audiblepodcast.com forward slash brain science. If you are new to the idea of brain plasticity, I highly recommend reading The Brain That Changes Itself first 
because it tells the story of the scientific pioneers who accumulated the evidence that overthrew the longstanding dogma that our brains become fixed after early childhood. Well, Norman, you have done a great job of highlighting the key ideas of your book for me. One thing that I wonder about is that despite the efforts of people like you, it seems that many clinicians are still telling their patients that their problems are permanent. And they also tend to, as you mentioned, dismiss unfamiliar methods as quackery. How do you deal with this ongoing skepticism? This is just what happens. I didn't choose to go towards cutting edge treatments. I was pulled in that direction just by what I think is reason and the failure of existing models to be adequate to explain some of the things I was seeing. One of the ways I deal with it is I reread Thomas Kuhn's brilliant structures of scientific revolutions. And this is what happens when there is a paradigm shift. People are engaged in a particular paradigm and anything that is outside the paradigm, they mistake their map of the world for the world, which is changing and different and always much more complex than the map. And if it doesn't fit the map, they say, if a patient with Parkinson's improves, people say, well, he couldn't have had Parkinson's in the first place. I saw that happen with Barbara Aerosmith. She would help these kids get better. She'd go and say, let's study them. And first they would say, well, they obviously didn't have learning disorders. And of course, they were completely well-documented. And they did have them. They just got better. And then they might say, well, it must have just been normal development or something. And then they just go on to the next patient. They're very left-brained about this, and they are living according to their map. And they don't see anything wrong with the map. And these anomalies are actually threatening to them because they may mean not only that someone got better, but that their map is inadequate. So people often lament this. Often changes of paradigm occur because... A younger generation, which hasn't invested completely in a particular map, looks at the two different maps and they say, you know, I think this one is actually more thorough. People make a bet in a scientific career, for instance, early on. They focus on a couple of problems and, say, a couple of windows into the brain. You know, it takes 10 years to get really good at, you know, any of these windows, fMRI or whatever it is. Then they've been working to get grants and so on and so forth. And you get very invested in your bets. And if your bet is an overall view of the brain, these things are very challenging. And what happens is one generation has a particular scientific or clinical revolution and it takes years for insurance companies to reimburse these things. And then most people are very conventional about it. And they came into medicine often for the right reasons to help people and wonder, but then they've got these huge debts and they've got a technique and blah, blah, blah. And they don't want to learn something new. And these are pretty time-intensive interventions. Now, in the long run, they save misery and time and money. I believe they work. But in general, they'll say of cutting-edge treatments, the first thing they'll say is, if they're very sort of wedded to their thing, well, show me the study, and I want the study to be a study that's based on the premises of my view of the brain. (laughs) Now, for some of the things I describe, there's just a mountain of evidence. The amount of evidence, for instance, for low-intensity lasers, there's well over 2,000 studies, good studies showing their efficacy in a wide variety of areas of healing. 
a lot of the work was done in countries that are a little closer to the east that was just less dismissive of the role of energy, although some of the very first low-level laser work was done in the United States. Now, you know, there's a fantastic center at Harvard in low-intensity lasers. Here in Toronto, we have some fantastic clinicians. In Ontario, a lot of lasers are made. It's sporadic. Most people don't know about it, but all of these people survive on word of mouth. Someone gets better and the patients continue. If we have 2,000 studies of low-intensity lasers, we don't need 2,001 to make the difference. It's not that the studies are bad. It's that they're outside of paradigm. Well, I know that you've done an incredible amount of research to determine which one of these methods actually stand up, and I assume that you've had people send you information about some methods that actually weren't valid, but do you have any advice for listeners who might be looking for help either for themselves, loved ones, or even a physician who's open and wants to help their patients? How do we sort out the scams from the real deal? Sure. I mean, it takes time. I, this is how I do it. I go to the mountain. Take Elizabeth, the girl who ended up getting better with Feldenkrais. Feldenkrais lived in Israel and he came and did some trainings in North America. They heard that he was not too far from the city where they lived, but he wasn't in the city where they lived. They went to see him in his hotel when he was visiting every time he came to America. And they also went on a number of visits. They're heroic people, her parents. And they went on a number of times to Israel. And then Finally, one of his students who had worked with Elizabeth and Moshe together, and not Baniel, moved to America, and then they would see her, but they didn't even live in the same city as her. This took place over years, but she got her life. And so the parents went. You know, I describe a number of people, and the safest bet is, can you go see the people I describe, I would say. For lasers, there are many, many practitioners, and I'm sure many of them are good, but I'm not a laser institute accrediting people. I can say that the people I describe, I think, are very, very good. And mm. the same for sound therapy. And you contact the people in the book. Some of these people will know if there's someone in your area that they think is a well-trained clinician using the technique. It's not up on my website yet. My book isn't officially out till January 27th, but shortly thereafter, I'm going to start posting links to these people. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you were going to have something like that. Yes, I will. But I also think that it's, forgive me, it sounds like a plug, but I actually think this is a complicated area. When you're talking about brain illness or brain disease, it's probably better to read the book first. Because I have, I think, something like four or five different interventions in that book for traumatic brain injury. Right. And I do a lot on autism with sound. But not all autistic kids are the same, and some autistic kids might benefit actually from Feldenkrais interventions for part of the treatment. And some head injury cases might benefit from several of the interventions, again, because there's different stages of neuroplastic healing as I see it. Now, this is the first proposed model of neuroplastic healing. I don't know of another model of stages out there. And I'm sure I'm going to follow Feldenkrais in the sense of feedback is just very, very necessary. Over time, I hope to refine that model. Well, I was going to ask you what's next for you, but it sounds like you just answered that question. That's part of it. The other thing I had to do was I had so much material that a lot of the more psychiatric interventions that I've been learning about simply had to be cut off from this book. So this book is more heavily dealing with brain-related problems that are all seen by psychiatrists, by the way. The American Psychiatric Association has a textbook for psychiatrists dealing 
with traumatic brain injury and we deal with chronic pain problems and of course we deal with autism and learning disorders and so on and many patients with Parkinson's get depressed so psychiatrists have to know about these illnesses to become a psychiatrist in the States you do an exam with the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology but that being said there are many treatments for psychological trauma that I just didn't get to discuss so it sounds like you have a whole nother book in yeah, there. I think I have several. It took seven or eight years, I'd say, to sort this out. So I am your unprolific guest. Well, it was a book worth waiting for. Thank you. That's very diplomatic. So just keep me posted on what's up. And if you do have a chance to come back to Birmingham when your time is not quite so pressured, I hope you will let me know. For sure, for sure. There's a great resource there in Birmingham with the Taub Clinic for anyone who has a stroke with movement problems and they've even developed speech-related interventions too. Yeah, Dr. Taub's office is actually in the same building as our palliative care unit, and I'm currently doing a fellowship in palliative care. So I haven't had a chance to get together with him yet, but I'm hoping to do that in the near future and get him back on the show, too, because he was on back around the same time you were originally. But anyway, Norman, it's great to get to talk to you today. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to get this out for the launch of your book. I'm actually working on an interview of Evan that I am almost done editing. I do want to say, by the way, that I think that the work that I'm doing is philosophically, I don't know if he would agree with this, but I actually see this as a practical application of some of the work that he and Albi Noy have been doing in terms of trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Right. I agree completely. I agree completely. And I wanted to do Evan because the conversation we had when the Dalai Lama was here brought up the whole issue of the ability of the East and West to inform each other. And that's kind of what his new book is about. So that was really good timing. If you haven't had a chance to check out his book, if you need a break from your own stuff, It's called Waking Dreaming Being. I'm definitely going to have a look at it. I'm going to let you go. And like I said, I will send you some links and I'll send them to your publisher too. Thank you. And on behalf of all of us for what you're doing and making this really important archive of living neuroscience. I want to thank Dr. Norman Deutsch for taking the time to talk with me about his new book, The Brain's Way of Healing, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. This book will be of interest to many people, especially those that enjoyed his first book, The Brain That Changes Itself. But as I said earlier, I do recommend reading The Brain That Changes Itself first. One thing I particularly enjoyed about today's interview was getting to know more about Dr. Deutsch's background. I didn't know that he studied under Nobel laureate Eric Kandel early in his career, and I was fascinated to learn that his interest in brain plasticity actually came from becoming immersed in the world of learning disabilities, since this is a field where, as far as I know, treatments based on brain plasticity are still not mainstream. He mentioned the work of Barbara Arrowsmith-Young. Her work is featured in The Brain That Changes Itself. The Brain That Changes Itself focused on some of the scientists who proved that the brain is actually plastic throughout life. 
while Deutsch's new book focuses on clinical applications of this discovery. Unfortunately, many of these treatments have been dismissed as fringe or quackery, partly because they go against the still rather ingrained dogma that our brains can't really change after early childhood. This view goes way beyond the discovery that our brains have a limited ability to make new neurons. More important is the discovery, according to George, that the ability of the brain to heal rests on its ability to form, unform, and reform circuits very rapidly. Deutsch also emphasized that developing new treatments will require a paradigm shift in the way we think about the brain. This shift goes beyond accepting plasticity. He observed that we have a too-material, too-chemical, and too-digital view of the brain, which has affected our understanding of brain damage. In the sense of being too material, he is referring to the fact that we tend to ignore that the brain's communication system is actually electrical and energetic. Too chemical refers to the fact that we tend to focus on pharmaceutical solutions, magic pills. Too digital refers to the assumption that the neurons are either on or off and neglects the role of noise and the fact that damaged neurons probably play a huge role. As Deutsch noted, the only time that neurons are completely off is when they are dead. Michael Mersnick has talked about the role of noise in the aging brain and also about how approaches that reduce noise show great promise. Deutsch and I also talked about the relationship between a noisy brain and learned non-use. Many of the approaches discussed in the brain's way of healing appear to work by reducing noise, often in ways that are completely non-invasive. Deutsch also talked about having what he called a two-imperial view of the brain, which is thinking of the brain as the place where all the action is, and that the idea that the body is just there to serve the brain. He says that the idea that you are your brain is terribly, terribly wrong, After all, brains evolved after bodies. He thinks that the final problem with the current model is that it's too corticocentric and that rather than looking for higher functions in the cortex, we ought to be looking at the results of the interaction between higher and lower regions. After all, the cortex and the subcortex did evolve together by interacting. We considered some of the clinical implications of these ideas. For example, there is some evidence of involvement of basal ganglia and the cerebellum in autism. This was actually mentioned by Temple Grandin in her recent book. And one of the implications of this involvement could be that kids that have subcortical problems are exhausted by trying to use their cortex to take up the slack. It also explains the possible mechanisms of methods that aim at subcortical regions, such as the use of sound and similar methods that are totally non-invasive. And the opposite example would be if a person has subcortical problems, some of these problems might be addressed by diverting cortical resources. There's an example in the book, one that has been attacked by Deutsch's critics, of a Parkinson's patient who has kept his symptoms at bay by a vigorous walking program that appears to work by him consciously thinking about how he walks and therefore overcoming the subcortical problems 
of the loss of the automatic ability to walk. I will note that at no time in the book is it claimed that this man's Parkinson's has been cured. Deutsch's book is full of diverse examples, but we focused on the story of Moshe Feldenkrais, who definitely qualifies as one of the pioneers of neuroplasticity. I picked him because I have personal experience with using the Feldenkrais method after my last hip replacement in 2002. Unfortunately, since his work predated the current appreciation of brain plasticity, his methods are often still labeled as alternative by those who haven't taken the time to learn the full story. Based on studying the work of a wide variety of practitioners, Dr. Deutsch has developed what he calls his first attempt at forming a model of how brain healing might work. He sees it as having four stages. The cellular level, which might be an example of where something like low-intensity lasers might help. Number two is neurostimulation, which could be the target of things like sound and electrical treatments. Neuromodulation. And finally, redifferentiation of brain maps. Probably this last stage is been the most well-studied so far. We closed out our conversation with a discussion about how do you determine which approaches are valid. Other than recommending contacting the people featured in this book, Dr. Deutsch's advice wasn't all that helpful. In fact, it inadvertently highlighted the fact that these new treatment approaches are currently available only to the affluent minority. I suspect that we are at least a generation away from the widespread availability of treatment methods based on brain plasticity. Dr. Deutsch touched on the reasons for this, and I won't belabor them here. But if the clinical aspects of brain plasticity interest you, I recommend The Brain's Way of Healing as a good introduction. I want to make one other comment about the methods discussed in this book. As I see it as a physician, one of the problems with these methods that goes beyond acceptance by mainstream practitioners and insurance companies and various aspects regarding money is just the fact that every one of these methods requires active involvement of the patient. They are not quick fixes. And it seems that, at least at the present time, many patients would rather take pills than follow treatment regimens that require them to do most of the work themselves with guidance. So to me, it seems strange to talk about Doidge as being a huckster because he's describing the kinds of programs that require really motivated patients, not people that just want to buy miracles. But as usual, our conversation barely scratched the surface of the research Dr. Doidge did for this book. So I encourage you to check out the detailed show notes at brainsciencepodcast.com. Don't forget that the Brain Science Podcast mobile app is now free and that the extras for this episode include Dr. Doidge's original interview, which was episode 26. I would love to hear your feedback about this and other episodes of the Brain Science Podcast. You can do this on the website or by sending me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. You can also post public comments on our Facebook fan page, our Google Plus page, and our Goodreads discussion forum. 
As always, I really appreciate those of you who support the show by being premium subscribers. That costs $5 a month and gets you all transcripts and back episodes. But don't forget that you can just share the show with others, even if you can't support the show financially. Next month, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Michael Gonzaga, who is best known for his pioneering work with split brain patients. But he's also considered the father of cognitive neuroscience. I've wanted to interview him ever since I started this show. His new autobiography, Tales from Both Sides of the Brain, A Life in Neuroscience, is providing an opportunity for us finally to get together. I also want to mention that in May, I will be speaking at the annual meeting of the American Humanist Association, which is going to be held in Denver, Colorado, May 7th through 10th. So you might want to check that out at AmericanHumanist.org. One last announcement before I close. I have recently redesigned my other website at VirginiaCampbellMD.com. That's where you find the detailed show notes and free transcripts for my other podcast, Books and Ideas. Even if you don't listen to Books and Ideas, I hope you will visit the new website at VirginiaCampbellMD.com and let me know what you think. Meanwhile... Thanks again for listening and sharing. I will look forward to talking with you again very soon. The Brain Science Podcast is copyright 2015, Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this podcast to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The new theme music for the Brain Science Podcast is Mindfire by Tony Catraccia. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com.